You're listening to Longwoods Radio, your healthcare source for ideas, new policies, and best practices. Here's a Breakfast with the Chief session. Tom Clausen speaks about the five most important ideas to improve Ontario healthcare. We got such a good turnout, so it puts me in a lot of pressure to say something that's uh, particularly relevant and useful. I uh, was asked by Anton to do a presentation uh, for Breakfast with the Chiefs, and I thought that the best thing I could do is try to summarize in a few points what I think are probably some of the key things we are doing and could be doing to try and make this healthcare system work better. Uh, I love numbers, and I'm going to show you a few before I sort of get into what I think uh, would probably make the most sense in terms of, of moving forward in Ontario. So I'm going to talk about how good the Canada's health system is, Look, looking at a few numbers, uh, a few numbers about Ontario related to the rest of the country, talk about some of the challenges, uh, talk about how the focus on health system or health care improvement has evolved in this province over the last, I'll say, 20, <clears throat> excuse me, 20 years, particularly. And then I'll uh, sort of end with my strategies uh, for improvement in the system. So uh, how does Canada stack up? There's a lot of, of surveys that you'll see. Some come from uh, groups that we uh, sometimes think have a little bit of a political bias and others come from organizations that we think are pretty neutral and, and do things in a fairly scientific way. And, and I think one of the, the better organizations in terms of doing comparisons of health systems around the world is the Commonwealth Fund, which is uh, out of New York State. That's where they originated. I think a couple of uh, family members started with major donation and it's evolved into probably one of the, the best um, organizations in terms of uh, health policy and, and giving advice on how to improve the health system. And I know the Change Foundation, which is a, an organization affiliated with the uh, Ontario Hospital Association, works closely with the Commonwealth Fund for that reason. I, I looked through a lot of the statistics and the reports the Commonwealth Fund has put out, and when you read through it, you really get the sense that Canada is okay, but there are certainly other countries that are doing better on a lot of key indicators. And two countries that uh, sort of stood out to me in looking at the material were France and the Netherlands, and neither of which I've looked at very closely as to how they're able to do this. But you know, I could I could draw a lot of uh, statistics to to support what I'm saying. But I thought I'd just show a few, and these, as I say, come from the Commonwealth Fund. So this first one is this is all these first few are just related to experiences of patients with complex health care needs. So these are people with multiple comorbidities that are trying to get access to a doctor. And um, this particular graph shows how long did it take sick patients to get an appointment to see a doctor. And this is the percentage of people taking six or more days. I think sometimes people who live in Toronto have a very um, odd or, or inaccurate understanding of what it's like to get access to a doctor in this country because it's actually pretty easy. We've got a lot of doctors in Toronto. Uh, relatively speaking, and um, so if you look at this, 34% of Canadians uh, reported that it took more than six days to see a doctor. Uh, these were sick patients. And we're in France, it was 10%, in Netherlands, only 3%. So access to care and primary care uh, is certainly easier in those countries. Uh, and then we have a look at specialist access to specialists. How long did it take to get an appointment with a specialist? This is the percent that took two months or longer to get access to a specialist. 42% of people, it takes two months or longer in Canada to get access to a specialist. 23% in France and 25% uh, in the Netherlands. Um, having said that, uh, Nolte and, uh, and McKee did some work for um, the Commonwealth Fund and they put together a statistic, an outcome statistic, which I've never seen before. And this is mortality closely related to the effectiveness of healthcare. So it's not just mortality statistics, it's they, they went through this in a fair bit of detail and looked at it from the perspective of uh, mortality closely related to the effectiveness of health care. And uh, they ranked 18 of the member countries of the OECD. 
And uh, Canada came in six, so six out of 18 is uh, a little bit better than the middle of the pack. And the reason they only did 18 was because those are the only countries they could get comparative data on. I think there's 28 or 29 countries in the OECD. But uh, France came in first, and, and you'll see in a lot of, of uh, various reports that come out, France always seems to come near the top or at the top. In this particular ranking, Netherlands came in eighth. So, so Canada did okay. Uh, uh, France, uh, again, seems to be outshining us. So I'll, I'll leave the international comparisons to that. I could have picked, a, as I say, a whole number of statistics. We have statistics, by the way, on the OHA website. Uh, if you go to facts and figures, uh, we do comparisons uh, pulled from a variety of sources of Canada to the rest of the world and Ontario to Canada. Anyways, going back to Ontario, this is Statistics Canada. They do their health surveys, and the one they did in 2007, the percentage of the population in Canada that rated health services received as good or excellent. Now, this is health services received. This isn't their view of the health system, because as you know, that number is always a lot lower, because people have a feeling, reading the media, that when they need the health system, the care isn't going to be there for them. So, but these are the people who actually received care. And uh, there isn't all that much difference between Ontarians and the rest of Canada. The rest of Canada is a little bit more positive, but it's probably not statistically significant. So anyways, the point being a pretty good percentage of people are, feel pretty good about uh, the care they receive. Um, and uh, it, Ontario is pretty much the same as the rest of the province. Uh, we always uh, hear in Ontario that there's a lot of people that don't, can't get a family physician. And uh, just wanted you to know that Ontario is in pretty good shape compared to the rest of the country. Look at this, 9.4% of Ontarians, this is the Stats Canada survey, say they do not have a regular medical doctor, whereas in the other provinces it's double that, it's 18.2%. So an interesting thing about this is Ontario actually has a lot fewer family physicians than other provinces per capita. So I'm not sure what those family physicians are doing in the other provinces, but people seem to be having trouble getting access to them. Okay, now here's, uh, here's some uh, data from the Ontario Health Quality Council. This is pretty remarkable. I, I borrowed this from them. Uh, at, uh, I asked them if I could use it. I saw it in a presentation they gave. And this is more related to do we write, do the right things for patients? And this is the percentage of diet, patients with diabetes or heart disease, receiving the recommended drugs and tests in Ontario. And it's a particular study that uh, is referred to by the Ontario Health Council. If you look at the graph, this is the percent of the people that, uh, the first bar is the percentage of people had blood sugar tests. Uh, the second, is, and that's only 46%, 48%. Um, and then we have uh, ACE inhibitors, uh, 40, uh, 53%. Uh, foot exams the past two years, 22%, and eye exam in the past two years, 42%. And when you look at uh, what percent had all of these things, which are recommended for people with diabetes, it's only 5.5%. So that's pretty dismal. It really suggests we have a long way to go in terms of caring for people according to what would be viewed as uh, appropriate practice. And then they did the same kind of work on heart disease. You can sort of read those for yourself, aspirin, beta blocker, uh, statins. And when they look at it overall, it was only 35%. So we're not doing very well for the heart disease patients either, however, a little bit better than we're doing for diabetics. Uh, diabetics. So then they, they said, okay, so what would happen if we uh, provided optimal care to patients with diabetes or coronary artery disease? And their calculations, this is the Ontario Health Quality Council, uh, came up with, we would save 8,000 lives per year in Ontario, 8,000 heart attacks prevented, 4,000 fewer strokes, 1,200 fewer cardiac surgeries or procedures. So we would end up, uh, we would end up uh, spending less money on procedures, we'd save more people's lives, and of course, you know, having a stroke isn't very, uh, very uh, uh, enabling in terms of, of trying to provide a uh, live a productive life and cost the healthcare system a lot. Now they haven't totaled up the cost of this on a slide, it would be a very interesting thing to do. So poor care uh, creates high costs and, and of course creates bad outcomes. And uh, we're doing that every day in this province. Now that's not to suggest that there isn't a lot of good care, because there obviously is, but I think uh, the Quality Council's uh, data suggests we, there's quite a gap between what's uh, identified as good care and what we're actually doing on a regular basis. So uh, 
that's uh, it for numbers. I well, no, I probably have a couple more. I I wanted to just talk about some of the challenges we're facing, and uh, we I do. Um, surveys of our members, and we're also doing survey. by the way, the Ontario Hospital Association has 155 hospital members. We have about 225 other members uh, that are members of the association that aren't hospitals. We actually have more non-hospital members than hospitals. For example, the, all the LINs and the CCACs are members of the Ontario Hospital Association. Many community agencies are. So we're doing surveys of them as well, uh, but from the surveys that we started with our hospitals and also the meetings I have with all the hospitals, the major challenges that uh, they identify in the system is going to be categorized into these three. There are others, but these are the big three. Funding, capacity, health, human resources. One of the things about, um, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, about capacity, efficiency. And I, I've used this statistic before in other, in other uh, presentations. This number keeps getting bigger. If you compare Ontario hospitals uh, to other hospitals in Canada, we actually fund them at 10% less per capita than they do in other provinces. And 10% may not sound like much, but when you multiply it by how much we spend on hospitals, it's $1.6 billion that we would be spending on Ontario hospitals if we spent at the same level per capita that they do in other provinces. So we call this the hospital efficiency dividend. And I'm not putting this forward uh, to suggest the government should be spending $1.6 billion more on hospitals. I just want to point out we're starting from a fairly efficient base, relatively speaking, compared to the rest of the country. Uh, I believe the reason for this, there's two reasons, I believe. One is, during the 1990s, there were cuts of 5% and 6% in hospitals at the same time there was inflation, and zero was the next year. So five, six, and then zero, no, no increase, and inflation was about 6% during that time. So 5 plus 6 is 11 plus 6, 17 percent essentially was taken out of the system over a three-year period in the mid-1990s. Some of you would remember that uh, with not very fond memories. Uh, and then the other reason is we've had a funding formula that focused on efficiency in Ontario. And uh, so not, it wasn't always used, but it was used a little bit sometimes, and it really put a focus on hospitals on trying to reduce their cost per weighted case, which is basically what this is all about. So uh, if you look at, at it, if you break it down though, we have lower average inpatient length of stay than they do in other provinces. People don't stay in the hospital as long. Fewer inpatient admissions. So we do a lot more on an outpatient basis than they do in other provinces on a per capita basis. We look better on, on statistics such as may not require hospitalization. And uh, we use fewer staff hours of care for similar patients. We, we staff at lower levels than they do in other provinces. Uh, we actually um, do uh, pay a little bit better compared to the average. We're not necessarily the highest of all provinces, but we're higher than the average, and we, our benefits are slightly better. But these are, when you net it all out, it comes to $1.6 billion. Now, capacity is, I really think, an important issue, and I'll come back to this as part of the solutions. But the interesting thing is, we've reduced hospital beds in this province from 1990 to 2007 by 45%. We went from 30 3,000 acute care beds down to 18,000. And uh, at the same time, the population went up 25%. So you multiply these two numbers together, and what it tells you is we have 0.4 of one bed uh, per, uh, per person, equivalent to what we had in, the, in 1990. Now, I will admit, I was at Sunnybrook in 1990, and hospitals didn't run particularly efficiently in those times. So there, and you know, we were laparoscopic surgery was coming in. So there's all sorts of room for efficiency improvements, but I, I just want people to realize that uh, a lot has happened. So when people say we haven't done anything to improve efficiency, I can assure you lots has been done to improve efficiency. Having said that, lots more is going to need to be done. Now, this is a graph I stole from the Ministry of Health. I don't know whether I actually have approval to show it, but, but, <laughs> but it's such an amazing graph that I just felt I had to include it. Because in any strategy that you have, you, you should be focusing. Like we have, uh, we have a lot of people that live in this province, over 13 million. But here's what this graph says. Uh, first of all, uh, up the uh, uh, y-axis, it's the percentage of total Lynn provincial estimated cost. This is for hospitals and home care. It's just hospitals and home care, what they spend, uh, the percent, uh, and, and along the, the x-axis, we have the percentage of the population. So that green line says that you would expect us, if you have 25% of the population, 
you'd expect to be spending 25% of your cost in healthcare if everybody used healthcare at the same rate. But we all know they don't. So that uh, dotted line shows what the reality is. And if you look at the first blue line at the 50% point, uh, what it's saying, and 1%, what it's saying is 1% of Ontario's population uses 49% of the cost of home care and hospitals in this province. 1% uses 50%, and 5% use 84%. So just think about the opportunity that's out there. So if you have a Lynn that has a million people, 10,000 people are the ones you need to focus on to, to deal with 50% of the cost. And understand, how did they get like that? What could you have done to avoid them costing the system so much in that year? And what can you do to reduce the cost during that year? Like 10,000 doesn't sound like a lot of people. And within HBAM, this comes out of the uh, health-based uh, allocation methodology of the government. That's where this data comes from. Um, they know exactly who these, what kinds of people, not as individuals, it's not individually identified, but what kind, of, what kind of illnesses they have, what kind of illness trajectories. And they can actually link home care to hospital care. So, so this is a very exciting graph. And, and uh, if I was running a LIN, I would put my, all my energy, oh, that had a million people, I would put all my energy on the 10,000 and, and try and uh, see if I could, because if you can reduce their costs by 10 or 20%, you've uh, just uh, reduced your costs overall by 5 or 10%. Pretty exciting. Um, so I want to show you that. Now, back to capacity. Huge problem. Uh, we've reduced all these hospital beds, and we don't need all, we don't even need all the hospital beds we currently have. Uh, it's pretty obvious to me because right now, 19% uh, of our hospital beds have people in them that don't even need to be there. And that number uh, is, uh, has been s pretty stable over the last year. It grew significantly in 2005, it was 1,600 patients, and it, uh, which is about 9%, and it doubled it to 3,000 patients by October 2008. And it hasn't shifted much. It's gone up and down a little bit each, each month, but it hasn't changed much at all. And if you look at acute care as well as uh, complex continuing care, rehab, mental health beds, all of the hospitals, we're talking about 4,500 people that are being cared for in the wrong place. This is poor care and it's expensive care. We have RPNs and RNs taking care of people that should be cared for by health care aides. This is just nuts. Costing a lot of money, bad care for them, terrible for their mobility. Most of these people are, are in their 80s, 90s, and uh, they can't get out. 17% um, of all the hospital beds in the province. So it's, it's I, you know, for me, it's, it's just, this is just astounding and something that needs to be dealt with. And of course, there are initiatives underway, aging at home strategy, et cetera, but so far we haven't really seen much impact of, of those strategies. And those strategies that have been working on for almost a year. So then you get into the emergency department, which is a big focus for the government in terms of trying to reduce wait times and emerge. And wait times and emerge are not going down. They're, they're in the last month and that they have data for, they've actually gone up. Uh, I'm hopeful that they will go down with uh, all the initiatives that are being put in place, but we haven't, seen, we haven't seen it start to go down. It may be down in some hospitals, but it's up in others, and therefore overall it's up. So on any given day, we have approximately 700 people in emergency departments who are admitted who can't get into a bed in the hospital. And, you know, if you want, who would want to be on a stretcher in an emergency department overnight for a day or two days or three days? But we have that going on. Again, poor care, not what emergency staff want to be working on. This isn't what they signed up for. And, uh, and it's very expensive. The Northeast Lynn, which is uh, Sudbury, uh, Sault Ste. Marie, North Bay, 26% uh, of their beds, one in every four beds, have ALC patients in them. Pretty hard to run a healthcare system when you're like that. So I come down to do we have the right mix of, of capacities of services? Do we have the right mix of home care, assisted living, nursing home beds, hospitals, day programs? Well, the answer is obviously no, or we wouldn't have this problem. And uh, when was the last time we really looked at this in a systematic way? It was at the time of the restructuring commission in 1998, which is 11 years ago. So instead, we've got every land sort of trying to figure out some way to deal with this, and some lens are in much worse shape than others. Uh, health human resources, major challenge, talking to people who work in hospitals and other, other uh, <coughs> sectors all across the province, whether it be nursing homes or public health or home care. You know, one of the big problems in Northeast Lynn is even if they had these facilities, there are, are, are no PSWs 
in the community to actually do the work. So trying to move people out isn't even just a matter of having enough home care or having uh, enough nursing home beds. There's no staff up there to actually staff these places because there isn't a PSW strategy. PSWs are not regulated in this province. They, some of them are trained a lot better than others. Some are trained in community colleges, some are trained in private schools, and uh, there's, no real there's no regulation around them. Maybe there should be, maybe there shouldn't be, but uh, we aren't producing enough of them, and uh, uh, it's a big problem in the Northeast. I use that only as an example. There are other major challenges that uh, organizations face in having enough staff, even in the big cities for specialized staff, emergency ICU, and in the community it's pretty much uh, every kind of staff. Um, when you look at the Canadian Institute for Health Information, CIS uh, uh, survey comparing Ontario to other provinces, it shows that we actually have fewer healthcare staff per capita in pretty well every discipline. We have, we have about the same number of specialists, but we have fewer family physicians, we have fewer RNs, we have fewer RPNs, we have fewer pharmacists, we have fewer physios, and we have fewer OTs. So we have a real deficit in terms of human resources in this province, and uh, it's something that needs to, uh, to be addressed more aggressively than it is. Now, I, I don't want to be totally critical here because I think actually uh, Josh Tepper is the ADM of Health Human Resources doing an excellent job in trying to address this, but, but more needs to be done. It's clear, particularly in the outlying areas of the province, it's a huge challenge to find the staff they need to run the facilities they're trying to run or the services they're trying to run. So uh, the question here is, does Ontario even use its human resources well? I, I pointed out the example of using RPNs and RNs to to care for people who don't even have an acute illness. Uh, 17, 19% of the people in hospital beds, 4,500, that's pretty expensive. So trying to get the right mix and all the new kinds of uh, disciplines is something we, uh, we need to be thinking about. So I want to talk just briefly about the evolution of healthcare improvements in Ontario. And one of the advantages of having been in healthcare for a long time is uh, I sort of lived through all these. I actually started my career at the Hospital for Sick Children in, in the 1970s, and um, the, uh, this comment isn't critical of the Hospital for Ch Sick Children. It's, it's sort of, I think, indicative of what it was like in the 1970s. People who worked in hospitals in the 70s had long coffee breaks and long lunch hours in the cafeteria. That would be the best way to describe it. It was, it was, a, it was a very easy time, the 1970s, in healthcare. Now, you don't see that anymore. People are lucky if they can even find a moment to have a cup of coffee in healthcare. It's, it's, it's a totally changed world. And, and, you know, the kind of patients that were in sick kids in the 1970s bear no resemblance to the kind of kids that are in sick kids today. Uh, sick kids is really a good name for it. Back in those days, uh, they weren't all that sick. Um, <laughs> anyways, the 80s, I guess we started getting into some financial problems, and there was some work that went on in the 80s with operational reviews of uh, a whole bunch of hospitals in the late 80s. Uh, but I really want to focus uh, on the 90s. The 90s were the government really got serious about trying to cut the costs uh, of health care and hospitals in particular, and then forming the restructuring commission to reduce the number of hospitals, to try and consolidate services, etc. But the, there was a real focus on cost savings in the 1990s. How can we get money out of the system? Because, of course, if you remember, the government had a huge debt and they were running big deficits, and the only way they were going to uh, uh, deal with that was uh, through making major cuts. And by the way, if you didn't see this morning, the deficit for Ontario for this year is now projected at $19.5 billion. Um, we spend about 17.5 on hospitals, so even if we got rid of all the hospitals in the province, that wouldn't balance our budget for this year. Uh, now, I, I recognize that uh, a big chunk of this deficit is, is one time in terms of bailout for the auto industry, but having said that, um, given the uh, economic situation, and I think this is a, uh, a topic for another speech I, I, I feel I want to give, uh, we're going to have a huge challenge in this province being able to get out of a deficit situation over the next uh, five years. When you look at government's projected revenues and projected expenditures, they look extremely challenging. And um, so I only paint that as a bit of a backdrop just to point out to you that the next few years are going to be really tough. Probably after the next election, that's when they'll get really tough. That would be my bet. Now, regardless of who gets elected, I think they're going to be faced with a, a, uh, a sense that balancing the budget is going to be uh, really challenging unless they can come up with ways to uh, 
get value for the money they're spending. Uh, the early 2000s, and I, I spent the end of the 90s out in British Columbia, the Capital Health Region, and I, I always remember the, how long people were waiting to get cancer surgery out there. It was just unbelievable. Now, we didn't even have a really good reporting system, and also in BC, everybody goes on strike all the time, which, thank goodness, they're not allowed to do in Ontario. So even if you started to get somewhere and reducing wait times in BC, then they'd go on strike. And everybody goes on strike out there, the doctors, the nurses, everybody. And, and so then the wait times would go up. Now, Ontario, fortunately, uh, doesn't have that as a problem. And, and um, in the early 2000s, the government really took this seriously in terms of a wait time strategy. And um, actually, I guess this is the time to plug the, uh, the journal on, on uh, learning from success, uh, the, the Longwoods Journal, about the wait time information system. So not only did they have a wait time strategy, but there's actually a, a, a reliable way of measuring wait times, better in Ontario than in any other province. But a lot of the solution to solving the wait times problem in Ontario for various surgeries and MRI CT scans, and now for emergency, is to spend more money to increase capacity. I, I, I don't know if anybody's done this analysis. My bet is 75% of the reason that wait times are reduced in Ontario is because we've increased capacity, put more money into it. 25% might be because we've improved efficiency. So I just point that out because, you know, we still have this huge problem in emergency, some of which, uh, particularly for the people who get admitted, is very tied to the issue that we don't have the right mix of capacities in the community, but getting the right mix of capacities in the community is going to cost some money, and uh, uh, you know you don't just create assisted living without spending some money, uh, for example. Anyways, uh, we've had great success on the access issue in Ontario, probably better in Ontario than in any other province. I think CIHI would, uh, from my reading of their documents, would suggest that, although I can't speak on their behalf. And and uh, then I look out to the future. And the ministry has become a bit enamored with Michael Porter, and um, the latest article I've, I've read of his, what is, the val what is Value in Healthcare, Institute for Strategy and Competitiveness, uh, January 2009, I think is probably the clearest document I've seen that he's written. He's written a book as well, but it's a little harder to read. Uh, and of course he's been up here talking to the government, and then people from the government have been down talking to him. I only reference that because I think he has a good concept. I don't agree with everything he says in terms of how to approach it, but his concept of trying to achieve value or outcomes per dollar, not just efficiency, not just productivity, but trying to achieve better outcomes. If we go back to my graphs that I showed from the Quality Council, assuming the literature would actually suggest that those things do produce better outcomes, um, there's, there's a lot to be said about trying to achieve the better outcomes and, and therefore being able to reduce costs. So some of it is sort of clinical uh, outcomes and therefore lower costs. Some of it is just efficiency in terms of the way we provide service like flow, etc. But anyways, I think it's a great concept and I think it really is at the heart of what we have to do. Ontario has had the most fragmented healthcare system in Canada. Uh, all the hospitals, all the community care access centers, all the nursing homes, all the various agencies. So when a Lynn try, you know, Lynn's, uh, ooh, I, I may have forgotten this number, uh, I may be wrong, but I'll say it's 2,500 agencies that the Lynn's fund, 2,500 for 14 Lynn's. Just think about that in terms of how in the world do you ever have time to actually do your planning and integrating when you have to sign contracts with 2,500 agencies. So there has to be greater consolidation of agencies to make this model of a purchaser provider work in this province and, and also to try and enable uh, improvements across the continuum of care, in my opinion. So anyways, a little bit of backdrop. And, and now I'm just going to briefly uh, talk about my strategy. Some of the things I sort of hinted at, uh, but I want to talk about care pathways, capacity planning, e-health, health human resources, and performance management. Not performance measurement, but performance management. And uh, so I'll, I'll just spend a little bit of time on each one. I, I, I really feel that these are five key areas. And you know, I'm not a brilliant person. I sort of pick from other people's good ideas, looking around at what seems to work. We, um, uh, we had a fellow here last year at breakfast with the chief from Andalusia, Spain, uh, talking about what they've done there. and. Uh, some of the ideas that they've 
uh, put in place there, I think are pretty consistent with what I have to say as well, but they've had a huge impact on how well their healthcare system runs. Andalusia is a, a state in, in southern Spain. It's a very nice place. You might want to visit it uh, sometime. So care pathways. I think we've really missed the boat on this. And I'm talking about care pathways across the continuum. A lot of work goes on in care pathways within organizations. But remember, as I said, we have this fragmented healthcare system. So uh, often what, what care pathways mean in, in healthcare organization is, is cost shifting. That is, let's lower our costs and let somebody else pick up the costs. And, and uh, you know, so hospitals may be the most efficient in Ontario, but one of the reasons they're probably the most efficient is other parts of the sector have had to pick up the, the, uh, the work that hospitals do in other provinces. And that's probably a good thing because they can probably do it more cheaply. But, but, I, but I just want to point out that... Uh, I'm not sure that was done necessarily by development of a care pathway. Sometime over the years it was done by hospitals just getting out of things to try and balance their budgets. The focus being more on balancing your budget rather than trying to improve the cost structure across the entire system. So if you're the Alin CEO and your focus is on negotiating accountability agreements with individual agencies as opposed to looking at care pathways across the continuum and trying to figure out how you can reduce the costs and get better outcomes, uh, you're really missing the boat. I would say last year, in terms of the negotiation of accountability agreements, it was the former rather than the latter. It was very much individual, bilateral negotiations as opposed to multilateral in most lens. And the KPMG report would, uh, that was done recently, I guess came out last fall, I think says that quite clearly. So, that, I mean, that, that was the start with LINS. I'm a big supporter of LINS. Uh, I think regionalization is a good thing. We have to try and make it work, but it can certainly be better than, than it is right now. So, we need to identify diseases and patient groups that would benefit from greater standardization of care based on evidence. Uh, an area where this has been, an, I think, extremely well in Ontario, relatively speaking to other things, is the cancer area. And, um, you know, Cancer Care Ontario morphed into a totally different organization when they devolved their regional cancer centers to the host hospitals and they started to care more about radiation than radiation therapy because cancer isn't just radiation therapy and they looked at drugs and, and they looked at uh, surgery as well and there's been much greater standardization of practice in cancer in Ontario. BC used to be the leaders arguably uh, if you look at their stats in terms of cancer outcomes and it was because BC was much more standardized in terms of their approach to cancer than Ontario was. But I think Ontario has done a lot of catching up in the last few years. So it's not that we haven't done some of this, but I think there's op other opportunities. Uh, we, I think the Stroke Network has done some good work in Ontario. I think we could be doing more on heart disease across the continuum. I think the, the Cardiac Care Network has been, been narrow in terms of its focus. That's its mandate. I'm not being critical. That's the mandate it was set up with. Uh, but I think it should be much broader in terms of the continued care. Renal disease, we fund dialysis. And we have this history of funding more and more and more dialysis. In British Columbia, they have a central secretariat staffed by statisticians that look at who are these people that end up on dialysis and what can we be doing earlier in the chain of events to avoid them from getting onto a dialysis. Dialysis, I'm sure, would not be fun to, to receive and it's very costly and people die after a few years on dialysis. So if you can really get back to the front end of this and do something, we have no capacity at the moment in this province to do it. So I just use that as another example, but you could pick many. So we gotta focus on optimizing cost and outcomes across the continuum, uh, keeping people well, acute care, chronic disease management, and, and ultimately palliation. If we get back to that graph I showed you, it'd be really interesting to understand who are these expensive 1% and, uh, and uh, that make up almost 50% of our costs and try and focus on them to decide where, where you might want to try and, and look at greater standardization of care based on evidence. Now, the, my, uh, uh, the big challenge here is even if you have, you know what's best, getting back to the diabetes, it's not that people didn't know what they should do for diabetes. There's lots of material out there for doctors, for patients. So why doesn't it happen? Why does it only happen in 5% of the cases? So we got to overcome the challenges of getting providers and patients to follow the pathways. So this is, this is complicated. You don't just produce pathways. You have to figure out how to make it happen. Some of this might be 
through providing information. Some might be peer support. Some might be through funding incentives. Uh, you know, with diabetics now, doctors, primary care physicians, if they do a flow sheet for their diabetic patients, they get paid money. So they have a financial incentive to manage their diabetic patients better than they used to in the past. Be interested to see how well that works. I, I'm not sure that we should provide financial incentives for everything. That gets to be a little bit costly, and hopefully it's unnecessary, seeing as we have a bunch of professionals that you would think that would want to provide the best care for patients. So you would hope just providing information and peer support uh, would be adequate in most cases. Anyways, we want to achieve better outcomes and lower costs. That is, achieve value, as uh, Porter suggests. Now, capacity planning, this is the one that so that first one, I think the care pathway thing is, is something the government's starting to work on. They're, they formed a uh, committee. They're going to do some pilot projects. Uh, so I think we're going to see something happen. Personally, I think it should be done faster. I think there's some low-hanging fruit. Let's just get on with it. Particularly given the economic backdrop I'm talking about, we've got to do this now. Uh, we can't do it sort of slowly and, and expect it's going to be helpful to us. We've got to take hold of it. Now, capacity planning is something that I've really been having trouble getting traction on. As I've been saying this for the last year, I'm getting a bit bored hearing myself say it. But if we, if we uh, now this is sort of tied to the care paths as well, because you've got to understand what's the right mix of capacities. It's not just what is our capacity now or, and, and try to make sure it's even across the province. When I was the supervisor at Grand River Hospital, I found that in the Waterloo-Wellington Lynn, there's no government subsidy for assisted living. But if you go to Mississauga, there's tons of government subsidy for assisted living. How in the world did that happen? Like, who decided that this part of the province should get it and that part shouldn't? I don't understand. So there is a lot of lack of logic, because a lot of people can't go into assisted living because they can't afford it, right? They can't, it's too expensive for them. So for many people, it needs to be subsidized. So instead, what happens, they end up in nursing homes and there's a lot of people in nursing homes who don't need to be there. So it's not just hospitals that have ALCs, it's nursing homes that have ALCs as well. People who should have never gone there. And of course, we built 20,000 nursing home beds and they all got filled up. And uh, there was real financial motivation for the uh, people that ran these to fill them up, as you can imagine, with people who didn't necessarily even need to be there. Because we didn't have adequate home support for people and we didn't have adequate access to assisted living. So we do need to understand prevalence of disease, the implications of aging, uh, mobility, uh, activities of daily living, and the supports that people need, which isn't really a disease, it's just, uh, it just happens. And uh, we've got to come up with uh, these cost-effective models. I think we can look to other countries for how they've addressed capacity. We've got to then project our future demands using the new models, and then establish the appropriate mixed capacities and services. It seems pretty straightforward to me. But trying to get traction on this issue has been very challenging. There is some interest, I'd say, in the government, but it's been really slow coming. And I, and I, just, I just don't know how you run a healthcare system like we're running it right now with 17% of the hospital beds, 4,500 people who don't need to be there. And all these people in nursing homes that don't need to be there. Uh, it's, it's just not a good use of our resources and uh, it's, not a good, it's not good quality care for the people that are in these uh, inappropriately placed. E-health, um, I should mention I'm on the board of Canada Health Infoway, and e-health has always been a real interest of mine. Infoway was just given another $500 million by the federal government. It's now up to $2.1 billion, I think. Um, I should know I'm chair of the Finance Committee. Uh, uh, and and uh, the latest round of money is, is primarily to... Um, get electronic medical records in doctors' offices because, you know, InfoWay's all been about creating the databases for labs, drugs, uh, medical imaging, but if doctors don't have access to databases, what's the point of having the databases? So finally the federal government has agreed that we should be, that they should be doing something uh, through InfoWay to help doctors get electronic medical records in place. Uh, there's various studies about what percentage of doctors use electronic medical records in this country, but uh, some studies will, are say as low as 10%, uh, maybe as high as 20%. Ontario, depending on what the source of my information is, is probably somewhere between 10% and 30%, so pick a number. I think it, the, the reason is definition of what does it actually mean to use an electronic medical record, but um, but. 
we've got a long way to go. Alberta is by far uh, ahead of the rest of the country in terms of light use of electronic microwaves. Prince Edward Island has basically got it all. And I realize they only have 150,000 people, but but uh, they've they had a strategy. They don't have much money either, so you got to remember that. And they and they've got implemented. And a few other provinces like BC aren't far behind. The the thing that where Ontario is really still way behind is having an all-drugs, all-people system. We do now have a viewer into the Ontario Drug Benefit Plan, but that's only a few years old. You know, four or five years ago, I was chair of the hospital e-health council. We are trying to get the government to... I think our e-health council should take credit for putting this forward. We said, you have this ODB database. Why don't you just let emergency doctors view it? We had an emergency physician from Sunnybrook on our, on our committee and uh, he said at a presentation, and this was a joke, by the way, he said, if an if a 85-year-old came in unconscious on a stretcher into his emergency department, and he could go into a system to see what drugs that person was on, it would take all the fun out of being an emergency physician. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the way it was in Ontario four years ago. And how hard was it really to have a viewer to go into the ODB drug plan? So, so people who receive drugs through that and special drugs programs, the emergency departments can get access to that. But for the rest of the people, the majority, they can't. And uh, in British Columbia, where I lived for a few years, off, twice I've lived there, um, they've had an all-drugs, all-people system in place for 11, 12 years. And it's, it's fascinating, you know, you go into a drugstore, you go to your doctor, they have access to wherever you, pick, you got your drugs, it's all there your whole drug history. So it's just amazing that this hasn't been given a higher priority. It is on the priority list for eHealth Ontario, and it just demonstrates how important it is for all of us to support eHealth Ontario to get it in place. We've done pretty well with PAX technology in this province with the help of, of uh, InfoWay and uh, the OLIS lab system. Well, it's been underdeveloped for a long, long time, and uh, pretty soon people should be able to get information out of it. But so progress is being made. Uh, but we still uh, we still have a ways to go in, in Ontario and in some other provinces as well. But we have to fully embrace e-health because how do you how do you deal with care paths across the continuum and the flow of patients and trying to achieve value if you don't have electronic health records? It's just impossible. So some of the things I'm saying we should be doing, uh, you know, merging some organizations, having fewer providers would make it easier because they all have their own information systems, but having uh, an information system that crosses the continuum actually negates some of the need for merging providers because you can use the e-health system as an integrating force. So it will, it will produce uh, a seamless system of providers and better care for patients and of course the whole issue of errors, reducing errors and, and duplication in the system, reducing cost and of course errors cost as well and they're, and they're bad for patients. Um, health human resources planning. I, uh, even though, as I said, I think there's been some good initiatives on health human resources planning in this province, I think we need an overall strategy on health human resources. Uh, you'll hear some commentators say, uh, we don't have too, too few family physicians. We probably have too many because family physicians are doing things that family physicians don't need to be doing. Uh, by the way, the one area we have more than other provinces is nurse practitioners, but given it's such a small number, it doesn't really matter. Uh, it's just that they don't have, they, they have fewer in other provinces. But, but you know, there's, there's certainly roles for, uh, for nurse practitioners. Uh, I'm a big believer in using the paramedics a lot better than we do. I believe we should have a provincial paramedic system like they do in British Columbia. We should have a much higher level of training for paramedics. This is an odd one to me. They're an unregulated profession. And yet, if you're really sick and you collapse in your house, they're the person who comes to your door. <laughs> but we have, we have massage therapists and acupuncturists as regulated professions, but, but not paramedics. And so training up paramedics and letting them do more in their, in their communities, keeping people away from hospitals, stabilizing people, makes a lot of sense. I mean, you could just go on and on and on and on. We've been working closely with the ministry around the physician assistant program. Uh, I think we just got to be looking at all sorts of different ways of providing service. Many hospitals now are moving away from um, all RN and uh, staffing and using more RPNs. RPNs are much better trained today than they were uh, five years ago. It's a totally different group of people. 
they're coming out of uh, out of these programs. So we this that we need an overall strategy, and uh, I think government needs to uh, take the lead on developing it. Um, we need to use uh, the evidence uh, on the right mix of health professionals. I think we really do need to look at mix. You know, pharmacists and hospitals, uh, I think the feeling that they should all have PhDs. Uh, physiotherapists and occupational therapists are all masters prepared now. So it creates all sorts of opportunities for new categories of staff at a lower cost to do the work that doesn't need to be people that are so well trained. And uh, so getting, using the evidence on the right mix is really, I think, something that's essential to reducing our costs and uh, making sure that we get good quality. Um, the other issue is local supply. Uh, as I mentioned, there are parts of this province that have severe problems in getting access to people. And there are certain sectors. Uh, you know, I, I chaired the nursing grad guarantee. Well, where did most of those new nursing grad, I should say the focus of the nursing grad guarantee was to get full-time jobs for new nurses. And it, it did that to a very much higher percentage than before. It's been evaluated by a researcher from McMaster University. But where did those new nurses go? Primarily in teaching, in the teaching hospitals in the big urban centers. So now there's not much in the design that encouraged them to go anywhere else. But I just point out that you know there were, were there's nursing homes that were looking for people. There's public health that's looking for people. There's home care that's looking for people, and and uh, they they're much more challenged. In northern Ontario, it's much more challenging. Even some parts of southern Ontario, in terms of access to people. So we really have to look at at strategies to ensure local supply the appropriate mix of health professions. And interprofessional care, I, I co-chaired a task force with Ivy Owen Dassin, who's uh, uh, an academic lead at the University of Toronto on interprofessional care. Um, I think we're all believers that interprofessional care is a good thing. I'm, I'm sort of a believer. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of evidence that really you can get in the literature that says that interprofessional care is actually a good thing. So we do need to be doing a lot more research on this and uh, understanding how to have interprofessional care in a way that's efficient. You know, having six people sit around in a circle talking, it's, it takes a lot of resource. So we need to think about how you efficiently have interprofessional care and get the best outcomes. And um, this final point, I was talking mainly about clinical people, but we have a leadership problem in healthcare in Canada and in Ontario. Talking to uh, uh, one of my board members who is on the board of uh, one of the hospitals in Ontario and the challenge they're facing in finding somebody to be the CEO of that hospital. Now Alberta has solved this problem. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, they only have one CEO for the whole province. But, but, even, but that's just a title. Um, you, you still, <laughs> I'm sure that person is still going to have a lot of vice presidents and directors and whatever. So it's leaders at uh, various levels. One of the things I learned, and maybe too late in my career, is that we don't give enough support to frontline managers. So, you know, you talk about CEOs and VPs. Well, most of those people have had a, lot, a long career to, uh, to develop themselves. But we put people in the frontline management positions and often without an awful lot of support uh, locally and without an awful lot of education. And, uh, and then we expect them to perform miracles. They have to deal with staff, which is always challenging. And then all these people from above have these great ideas they want them to implement. And uh, so they're like the meat in the sandwich. So these leadership programs uh, are, need to improve executive and management leadership capacity at all levels. And I'm pleased to say the OHA has uh, uh, been working. Frank Hoda uh, joined the OHA last year to start the development of a leadership institute. So we're developing all sorts of materials and courses and uh, uh, assessment tools or, or identifying them that hospitals and other health providers could use in terms of uh, identifying leaders, assessing leaders, uh, developing leaders, and uh, we think that this is probably one of the most important things that the OHA could be contributing to the system at the moment because uh, uh, we see a real leadership vacuum. There's a lot of people out there that are pretty close to my age. And then finally, performance management, and, and I, I said I, I call this management, not just measurement. First of all, I think, and I've been quoted in the paper saying this, that the ministry should uh, get its strategic directions out. Uh, we, the focus has been very much on access, but access is not the only issue in the system. 
And uh, we, we do need to be focusing on outcomes. We need to be focusing on efficiency. So we need to be focusing on value. And, and we need to see in the government's plan how they're going to do that and what the targets are, uh, what the indicators are and what the targets are. And those need to be public so that we like the wait times information is on the government website and we need to be measuring uh, our progress towards it. And that needs to serve the LINs and the, and the, and the service providers so that we put the priority <laughs> on the right things. Uh, we're big believers of public reporting. We just uh, started uh, this new website called myhospitalcare.ca, which you can go into and see 39 indicators on every hospital in this province. And you can pull up the hospitals you want and you can compare them They're compared to each other. We're working with the Quality Council. We want to pass that, that over to them. We think it should be myhealthcare.ca, and, and this is focused on the public being able to go in and easily get access to understandable indicators and make it broader for the whole healthcare system. We just thought we would start the ball rolling on this. And, um, and this final point on this slide is making a selective use of incentives to, see, to achieve performance expectations. I think financial incentives are of some value. I, you know, the government right now is giving, through the LINs, uh, bonuses to hospitals that can reduce their wait times in eMERGE by 10%. Uh, that's an incentive. I mentioned the, the incentives that were associated with uh, diabetic care family physicians. There are a number of them that they're trying. But I, 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 use, I underline the word selective because I think, based on my experience and my read of literature, an awful lot can be accomplished just through transparency and peer support. And I think that's, that's been shown a lot with some of the strategies, the intensive care strategy, uh, the, the uh, uh, stroke strategy. Uh, nobody provided financial incentives. So I'm not opposed to financial incentives. I actually think it's a good idea, but I just think we, it needs to be thought through as to what are the tools we're going to use to actually improve performance. Um, so. Those are the things I wanted to say. So in closing, I, I think the challenge is formidable. Having an $18.5 billion uh, deficit this year certainly is a bit of a scary number. Um, but I think the things I've talked about, and I didn't dream them up, obviously, uh, but just sort of pulled together from a variety of sources, I think if we had a coherent approach to this, they would make a big difference. And, um, you know, I, I, our system is, is sustainable, but we've got a we can't, this is not the 1970s, there's no time for long coffee breaks and lunch breaks in the cafeteria. Uh, I know that those times are long gone, but they're never coming back, uh, <laughs> just, just in case you wondered. In fact, I, I think uh, we've all got uh, uh, tons of work to do to try and maintain a sustainable health system, but uh, just the fact that you came out to hear me, uh, gives, me gives me hope. Thanks a lot. Longwoods Radio. Thanks for listening.